arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. We open tonight with a new series of episodes that one could categorize as a story of the Old West circa 1882. That's not what's going on here. The theme, as in many Old West stories, is justice. But justice in this novel does not begin in 1882. The injustice begins inside a courtroom in 2012. Assistant Attorney Jake McBride cannot believe what transpires. Even more phantasmic is what happens when the court case is decided. When the internet was new, I originally began this book in the 1990s when I was a road salesman. I would take my lunch hour and after work to wade through material on the Old West. As the book 1882 matured, I would buy books on the Europe's The Cowboys, The West, and Johnny Ringo. I also categorized all my time travel books by year, which might seem very orderly. I decided in 2020, however, to focalize my titles in a way that would summarize the book in a few words. When you're dead, you're dead. It's listed as part of the Nexus series. Let's start this engine, or should I say, let's mount this pony. When You're Dead, You're Dead by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Chapter 1, San Francisco, California, June 17, 2012, 2.15 p.m. It was a time when liars were heroes and killers walked free. Jake splashed cold water over his sweaty face and peered into his chestnut eyes in the smudged men's room mirror. His auburn hair, tinged with red strands, floated over his forehead. As assistant district attorney, he had pleaded his case perfectly in front of a sympathetic jury. Yet the trial left him with deepening circles ringing his bloodshot eyes. He cupped his hands in this stark, frosted window light. Then he doused his face a second time. Even the local and cable reporters said he had convinced the jury that Johnny Rheingold had committed murder. Johnny arrived in Marina Green Park in a red Lexus 350. Seven minutes before, he had left the quick serve, holding a 20-ounce cup of Cold Harbor coffee, and walked under the surveillance camera across the concrete to his convertible beyond the pumps. Two pedestrians, women just over 20, were returning from dancing at Temporos. Usually they walked along Van Ness Ave, but tonight they were trying to hide from two inebriated guys from City College. They witnessed Johnny run the Lexus through the Market Street traffic light at 12.14 a.m. on May 21, 2010. At 11.45 p.m., Mary Jo Simmons dropped off her fiancé Tom Dunbar at the entrance to Marina Green Park. They argued about Dunbar waking her from a sound sleep to head to the park. He was nervous and feared for his life. She had surmised that a month had passed since Dunbar received his first heroin shipment to their apartment off 21st Street. Yet the rumor on the street involved a hijacked shipment of heroin worth millions from Southeast Asia and someone named Josh Gordon. Dunbar knew about the boatload of heroin off Stinson Beach. Everyone had kept quiet except Dunbar. He threatened to talk to Jake's office. 
Albion as investigators could not locate Johnny, but Jake thought John Rheingold was Josh Gordon. On May 20th, Johnny told Dunbar he wanted to see him. Dunbar was shot four times in the chest with 9mm 125-grain hollow-point jacketed bullets. Johnny carried a 9mm that evening because it was stolen from an off-duty cop at Stafford's Salon on 16th Ave. Three people witnessed the fight in the alley. The cop, Sergeant Hancock, was shot in the neck and his gun was missing after the fight. Johnny inserted four bullets matching the hollow points purchased at Info Ammo in Alameda into his gun earlier that evening. A straggler named Fred Early, 45 years old, addressed at the YMCA, staggered along the bay near the boathouse. He heard four gunshots along the water where the extra boats were moored. Early covered his head and hid under a boat until the cop car's red and blue lights flashed around the marina. Then he crawled out and walked over to Dunbar's body in the gazebo. Early spent the next 15 minutes telling the cops he did not fire any gun, but they kept him in the cruiser because he heard the shots. Johnny's prowess in driving the Lexus 300 miles to Brinson, Nevada, irked Jake. He deposited it in his friend McGuire's auto body shop, where they disassembled the car and crushed it in a Reno junkyard. Harry McGuire blabbed about the escapade to his drinking buddies. Word got back to San Francisco. The cops had him downtown within 24 hours. Then he vanished. Not long after McGuire's disappearance, Lieutenant Scott Dooley called Jake in his office. Dooley was a loudmouth cop with 25 years of street experience. He liked doing things his way. He assembled the case against Johnny in less than a week. Jake wanted the methodical approach that made sure everyone was telling the truth about what they saw that night when Dunbar was murdered. Another problem with Dooley's method was he enjoyed driving by and following those he was about to arrest. That brought him to a freeway on a Sunday afternoon. Johnny played first base in a softball game in the Ocean View Recreation Park. Dooley found a seat along the first baseline and taunted Johnny for five innings until Johnny leaped the fence. Four teammates pulled him away from Dooley. Dooley might not have jeopardized the case had he not produced his badge for the umpires. Johnny then hired pricey L.A. lawyers, headed by legal legend Sam Turner. Turner's slick team of city boys pounced on Dooley's ballgame stunt. Jake kicked the bathroom door and pounded his fist on the peeling plaster. Jake was at first sure that Johnny would spend the rest of his life in prison. Turner's attorneys destroyed Dooley on the stand and the jury knew it. Now at 27 years old, he feared he was about to lose his first case. The deranged legal system favored a man who had ruthlessly gunned down Dunbar. Judge McKenzie would enforce the law. Johnny is a damn killer. What kind of justice is that? Well, there is no justice here. Jake circled the painted blue stalls. Okay, uh, there's no one in here. He moved to the window and pushed it open. The traffic sounds and the cooler city air filtered inside. The highway cars slowed in a rush hour crunch. People crossed the busy streets and the inner city traffic was a mass of red lights and blaring horns. He took a deep breath and turned. A darkened corridor extended into a hazy light source within the bathroom tiles and the chip plaster. A bearded, rotund man in a vested brown tweed suit 
held a silver pocket watch in his pudgy hand. Who the hell are you? The man produced a quixotic smile and his azure eyes gleamed. And how can there be a passageway in the wall? Why not? I didn't see any corridor here. Then you weren't looking, sir. I repeat my question, who the hell are you? I am Mr. Melbourne. Okay, Jake laughed and shook his head. I finally cracked. Two and a half years and a perfect record, I finally cracked. Now I lose my first case and start hallucinating. Melbourne's voice had a credible smoothness laced with great emotion. I assure you, Mr. McBride, that what you are seeing is real. I apologize if I have startled you. I know you're under tremendous pressure by losing this case. How do you know anything about me? And just how do you show up here? Come on. Letting Johnny go free is not right. Jake gestured toward the corridor. Judge McKenzie will have no choice. Not in this reality. Johnny has the drug money to pay them all. Listen, I have to get back upstairs, and then I'm calling a shrink. Melbourne tucked his watch into his vest pocket. He squinted and pressed his lips together before he spoke. I understand your misapprehension, and I want to offer you a deal. What? I've been watching from the shadows of your life. I know the intensity of your commitment to the truth, your integrity, and your quest for justice. What will happen in Mackenzie's courtroom in the next half hour is not justice. It's a mockery. I can assure you of that. Have I lost my mind? Not at all. You have to appreciate that I cannot let you inside until you have accepted my terms. Again, Please forgive my suddenness and my intrusiveness. Jake smiled and tightened his red tweed tie. I'm getting out of here. I have to get back into court. I can arrange for you to bring Johnny to justice. Jake turned and faced Melbourne back in the strange corridor. In case you haven't noticed, huh? I'm an officer of the law, not a vigilante. You're a man who wants justice. I have the ability to bring people into situations where, using their own abilities, they can seek justice not offered in this life. I am losing my mind. Goodbye, Mr. Melbourne. Jake spun on the slippery men's room floor and stormed by the white ceramic sinks. He pushed open the swinging door. The corridor chatter and confusion overtook him. The reporters turned in unison and descended upon him. They stuck a plethora of microphones in his face. Mr. McBride, any chance the judge will change his mind? No comment. Do you really think this is fair? Asked the stringy-haired Kara Conley from Channel 8. Jake looked back toward the men's room door. Melbourne's image inside the wall card remained in his thoughts, and his words about justice bounced around his brain. No, Kara, I don't think this is fair. Can we quote you on that? She asked, pencil in hand and ready to inscribe his words into her notebook. Any luck in finding Mr. Rheingold? Jake slowly shook his head. Would you indict Rheingold? I would if I could find him. Jake veered up the spiring marble staircase to a rotunda with a mosaic floor. Around the rim, marble Greek statues stood like guardians outside the courtroom as huge murals from American history led to the varnished courtroom doors. 
Albie's forehead was wrinkled all the way to his disheveled gray hair. I wish I could have uncovered more, Jake. I'm sorry. Ah, there's nothing you can do about it, Albie. The guy is a low-life scum. All I keep hearing about is his rights. What about Dunbar? He's dead. Jake bit his lower lip. The sunlight pierced the open Venetian blinds and cut across the voluminous courtroom. Judge McKenzie's empty bench, boarded by huge fluted white pillars, loomed over the shiny defense table twenty feet away. Johnny was not yet back in the courtroom, but his leather-clad girlfriend stretched out in the seats behind the defendant's table. Her long, perfectly formed legs extended toward Jake, and the deep scent of pizzazz perfume surrounded the area. She had the sly look of a cheap street-walking slut. You lost the big one, Jake boy. Jake's eyes swept across her sheer silk blouse and leather skirt. You'd be best to stay away from him, Pam, before you get yourself in any more trouble. Some part of him regretted sleeping with her. Her brush mascara and sultry green eyes cast a seductive lure Jake still found arousing. She spoke in a low, direct voice. You call me Mr. District Attorney. Albie pushed Jake along to the prosecutor's table. His young assistants, glum and silent, looked up to him. He pursed his lips and said nothing. Letting them down was another aspect of this travesty. The heavy wood side doors opened and three bailiffs brought Johnny into the courtroom. A wide smile covered Johnny's thin face and his blue eyes focused on Jake. He puckered and sent a kiss in Jake's direction. A pewter cross earring swung from his ear above a clump of sinewy brown hair dangling down his neck. Jake read his lips. You're a loser, Jake. Son of a bitch, Jake replied, continuing the dialogue. Johnny tilted his head back and laughed. Even Sam Turner, his silver-haired lawyer, a man about to launch a campaign for governor, had a grin on his pockmarked face. The chamber doors opened and everyone stood when the wavy, white-haired Mackenzie shuffled to the bench. The gavel bang against the wood echoed around the courtroom. Jake's mind focused on Dunbar's autopsy photos. He glanced over at Bart Bowers, the FBI agent involved in tracking Johnny's drug activities. Bowers grit his teeth as he shook his bald head. For five minutes, Mackenzie's constrained voice pronounced Johnny the victim because of Dooley's attack at the ball field. Mackenzie always told Jake he did not relish sending criminals back to the street. He chastised Dooley but never condemned Johnny. When the judge finished, Bowers stood and turned like a military man toward the courtroom doors. The judge's gray eyes moistened as Bowers exited the rear doors. Jake and Bowers had 11 witnesses and a cruiser surveillance camera. Yet, in less than a half an hour, Johnny would be free. Chapter 2. Coltrane's Health Club, San Francisco, California, June 17, 2012, 2.15 p.m. Jake swung the racket and sent the little black ball careening off the wall. Jim Coltrane blasted it back. Jake cocked his arm quickly and missed. The sweat dribbled down his temples. Then he clamped his eyes. The anguish had intensified after Johnny left in the limo. His game was off. Coltrane scooped up the ball and faced him. You and I have been buddies for 20 years, Jake. You all right? I'd like to say I'm all right. He looked into Coltrane's sharp brown eyes. 
What do you do when somebody like Johnny is on the streets after committing murder? I don't know what to compare it to. Be like somebody refusing to pay the bill at your restaurant, and then it was sanctioned by the courts. Except it was murder. Coltrane squeezed the black ball with his left hand. I think you have to let time take care of it. Time? Come on, Jim. I'm never going to get over this. He dropped the ball onto the glossy wood floorboards. What about Pam? She keep calling you? Getting involved with her was a major mistake. She swore she hadn't seen Johnny in months. Coltrane stroked his scruffy mustache. Woman is poison. I, I wouldn't believe anything she says. You have no idea what that woman can do. Coltrane nodded and raised his brows. He put his hand on Jake's shoulder. You want another game? I may hit the showers, said Jake as he rubbed his eyes. I'm going to get a little bit more exercise. I'll join you in a few minutes. Good. Let's stop by the restaurant later and have a drink. Sounds good. Coltrane bounced the ball and lobbed it forward. Don't worry, Jake. You'll straighten this thing out. I think I'll just get on my Kawasaki and just keep riding, Jimmy. Maybe at some remote location he could clear his head and let this Johnny thing settle in his mind. He waved his key over the beam and the door opened. His cell phone buzzed inside the locker ahead. After fumbling, he pulled open the metal door, but the phone had stopped ringing. He plopped himself on the center bench, and sweat rolled down his cheeks. The phone rang again. He scooped it up from his bag. Jake, this is Alby. Yeah, what's the good news, Alby? I don't have any good news. Lay it on me. Johnny, he's on the run again, Jake. He, uh... Jake squeezed the phone and started along the locker room benches. What the hell did he do now? Levi Hansen. Shot from behind and then in the head. He's at Bancor Hospital. I know Johnny was involved. Levi's worked for you for over a year, Alby. He was running down the connection with Johnny along the docks. And Levi got too close to it all, Jake. Jake fell onto the bench and put his head in his hands. You there, Jake? You there? Yeah, I'm here, Elby. You want me to do anything? Yeah, change the system. I don't believe this. This bastard has no damn conscience. He gets away with murder and hijacking 60 million in heroin. And now he's at it again. Somebody's got to plug him, Jake. Track him down and plug him. That's the only way. I'm hitting the showers, Elby. I'll call you. He pushed the yellow button and set the phone back on the sport bag. The shower area rumbled. Brightened steam swirled inside and leaked into the locker room. Some kid must have turned on all the showers. Jake stomped into the haze and clenched his fist. Hey, one shower at a time! Melbourne called out from the fog. Levi Hansen just died at the Bangkok Hospital, Jake. I'm losing my frigging mind! The mustard tiles along the shower wall spread like an invisible zipper. Down the same wood-paneled corridor, the mid-sized Melbourne, in a lighter vested suit, silver watch chain draped from his vest pocket, stepped to the foggy edge of the showers. An empathetic smile trickled up his bearded face. I think you want justice. Maybe. I can offer you justice, Jake. Okay, said Jake, looking back toward the empty locker room. 
I'll bite. How are you going to offer me justice? Melbourne motioned toward a spacious room, also wood-paneled, with a silver-framed painting of a clown above a marble fireplace. I invite you to come to accompany me to the Nexus House, under your own accord, of course. Nexus House? Jake smiled. How can you produce a corridor from your house to a shower room wall? Reasons are not as important as reality. Well, what the hell's that supposed to mean? Jake, do you want to bring Johnny to your own kind of justice? How? He shook his head. This is, this is totally bizarre. Yes, I know what you must be thinking, and I do apologize for my lack of hospitality. You see, I make it my business to seek out those who long for justice. Jake moved closer through the fog until he was only a few feet away. How? I bring people into a new existence as real as the world you live in now. If you will accept my offer, you will experience the range of human emotions and consequences. You can love and hate, live and die. Then what? If I get the justice I seek, you'll have a choice. You can stay where I place you or you may return to the world you live in now. Jake stroked his chin. I don't even think you're real, Melbourne. Johnny's killings and crimes are real. Am I committed if I walk inside there? Melbourne removed a finely wrapped cigar from his coat pocket. He struck a thin wood match against an abrasive strip and produced a flaring orange flame. He lit the cigar. Once the tobacco glowed red, he exhaled a blue smoke stream. No, you are free to visit the Nexus House. No final agreement is reached until you actually walk into your new existence. Levi Hansen just died at the Bangkok Hospital, Jake. Jake continuously shook his head. He moved his hand back through his sweaty hair. You know, I just may do this. Your choice. Jake crunched his teeth and walked through the fog. He stepped into a clear, dry corridor permeated with rich tobacco. Melbourne held the cigar in his left hand and extended his smooth right hand. Flowery raised red velvet paper spread above the wood paneling into a larger room. Jake turned back. A wall now existed where the showers had been. But where's the health club and gym? Still there, said Melbourne, puffing. He motioned Jake toward a larger room. A long, polished wood table reflected a silver chandelier sculptured glass bulbs. Will he be looking for me? How will he know? Jake! Melbourne put his hand on Jake's wrist. I've taken care of all of that. Interesting. Jake moved past Melbourne. His eyes were drawn toward an odd painting of a clown with wide red lips and waxy white makeup balancing on a unicycle and pedaling toward a high door marked in black letters. In his left hand was a wad of cash, and in his right hand was a brilliant silver key. The tarnished brass tag at the bottom of the silver frame had the painting's title etched into the metal. Anything goes. I've always been pleased with this painting. Melbourne's milky eyes exuded an overpowering passion. He was the kind of man Jake could respect both intellectually and spiritually has a certain surreal quality about it, wouldn't you say? Above a roll-top desk, an oak Roman numeral wall clock chimed on the hour. Jake faced the gentle rocking silver pendulum. 
He counted eight chimes. Well, this is an interesting place. Forgive my impertinence. Are you from another world? It's uh, very difficult to absorb all this. Realms exist all around us. You'd be surprised. Tall, olive-skinned butler in a maroon uniform motioned two French maids pushing a food cart to the table. They removed the silver top and spread smaller hors d'oeuvre trays across the table. Champagne? The butler awaited Jake's reply. Sure. As the butler set down the crystal goblets on the table, Melbourne placed his cigar in a glass ashtray and motioned Jake to the high-backed chairs. The butler propped the cork of a large, green, moisture-smatted bottle. Jake slowly sat down, and the butler nudged his chair forward. Melbourne lifted the champagne glass into the air. To justice! Jake pinched the stem. Melbourne's image wavered through the bubbly golden champagne. Yeah, to justice. Yes, of course. Jake pressed the glass to his lips and let the liquid tickle his mouth. He set the glass on the table as the maids offered him a spinach twirl, pierced with a toothpick. I am quite impressed that you saw fit to join me here. Many do not heed my call. Many stay away from the new possibilities. I'm still hesitant. He held the toothpick and munched on the spinach. What exactly do you propose, Melbourne? I can show you all that once we're upstairs. Suffice to say, I can put you, Johnny, and the other persons notable to this miscarriage of justice into a certain place. You will have no knowledge of me or your past life. You will accept the challenges the new situation offers. You mean somehow bringing Johnny to justice? Yes, but only within the reality that I give you. And I have to warn you, your new reality will be as real as your life now. And your life and everyone's life will be at risk. When you're dead, you're dead. Jake sipped some more champagne. I don't care if my life is at risk. Not if it means getting a chance at Johnny. Melbourne nodded and lifted the cigar from the ashtray. He puffed as Jake leaned forward. What about the other people? I will only indicate there will be other people you already know from your life now. But in your new existence, they will have their own identities. He finished the champagne and the butler stepped forward. No more for me. Jake? I'm all set. Holding the champagne glass in his hand, he gazed back to the health club wall. I don't know how you're pulling all this off, and I don't know exactly what you have in store for me. Then you're ready. Why not? Melbourne brought the tobacco to an orange-red luminescence. Good. There comes a time when a man has to come to terms with himself. Stand up for those things he knows are right. Jake pushed his chair back, stood and walked around the table. He wanted to smile, but pursed his lips before he spoke. Interesting. Real interesting. Melbourne balanced the cigar between his fingers and motioned him along the painting. The butler slowly nodded as Melbourne guided Jake to an antique elevator with a rounded, green, luminous dial above polished silver doors. The Nexus house has three floors. We will, of course, be going to the fourth floor. In his white shorts, Jake seemed out of place to the well-dressed Melbourne. Fourth floor? 
the realm of imagination and chance. The silver doors spread with machine precision, and Melbourne pulled back the inner gate. Clear sconces set amidst more red velvet wallpaper cast a crimson glow across the car. Jake stepped onto the buffed black-and-white tiles and stood next to a leafy plant filling the corner of the elevator. The same clown painting in smaller form hung in another silver frame on the side wall. Melbourne closed the gate, the outer doors clamped shut, and he stood next to a manual silver lever. Would you like to operate the elevator, Jake? Jake shook his head. You sure like that painting. Melbourne grinned, moved the lever forward, and the car hummed slowly upward. As if he were still in the service, Jake assumed an at-ease position and clasped his hands near the corner plant. Several minutes passed before the car slowed and the doors opened to an extraordinary drawing room. Everything in the room was oversized. The wood-paneled walls were as tall as the courthouse interior, and a prodigious wood pendulum clock next to a white, marble fireplace dwarfed the two men. A warm fire hearthed the size of a tunnel with massive logs blazed at full intensity. Wow, this is a little intimidating, Melbourne. And that same painting, said Jake, staring at the silver frame above the fireplace. He wandered under a vibrant crystalline chandelier but was drawn to the silver frame mirror as high as a basketball hoop. Melbourne smoked the cigar behind him. Where am I? I don't see myself. You aren't here. You have passed from the substantive to the transcendent. Well, I assume this mirror means something. What's beyond that mirror? Your destiny? Really? You walk through and you become Jake McBride, respected and revered in your town of Brinson, Nevada. Oh, come on. The town marshal, living in 1882, a world of challenge in the great American West. Marshal. Jake faced Melbourne and smiled. So that's it, the old West. Listen, how do I even know if I can trust you? If you find my credibility suspect or you sense that my offer is disingenuous, I will bring you back to the health club now with, as they say, no hard feelings. Jake laughed nervously and rubbed his mouth. Listen, uh, this is just too weird. Melbourne held his wrist again and spoke in a lower voice. You only have one chance against Johnny, Jake. In this new world, whatever happens, happens. If Johnny dies, he dies. But the converse is true. You can die, too. When you're dead, you're dead. Exactly. You're saying if Johnny is killed, he'll really be dead. Yes, sir. He raised his brows. Well, I want the son of a bitch dead. Melbourne's eyes tightened and he nodded slowly. He rubbed his thumb against his forefinger. You will have that opportunity. A confined hallway with two half-wood cafe doors formed inside the massive mirror. Bouncy piano music spread out with it and glasses clinked within a loud buzz of conversation. Several women in red pleated dresses with low fringe cut around ample cleavage sat in the laps of patrons at the center tables. A broad-shouldered bartender clad in a white shirt and apron, his hair parted in the middle, mixed a rusty drink for a dingy man with steel gray hair and a wide-brimmed dusty hat.
1882? The Arroyo Saloon. Are you ready? Jake surveyed the saloon ahead. I'm not sure. I will tell you this. You'll never get justice if you don't walk through those doors. And Johnny will live his life free to kill again. Jake shuffled closer. Perfume from the dance girls mixed with beer and something cooking. Beer glasses clanged on the bar and the piano music lured him forward. He stepped into the dank air. Afternoon light covered the group of soiled, dust-covered cowhands packed along the wood bar. When he turned to speak to Melbourne, he faced a rough, sod-plank wall. Melbourne! Then a rising smile brushed his face. His dusty black leather boots clicked against the worn wood floorboards and his spurs jingled. He wore leather chaps and felt a drooping mustache. Marshal Jake McBride sidestepped toward the bar. The loud saloon sounds, the dried beer, and the pungent drift of the cow punches in need of bass was a relief from his being on the range for the last week. Dozens of gritty, drunk, animated patrons surrounded the chipped, stained, and pine tables below a stretch of bright, frosted front windows. Rows of colored liquor bottles lined the bar mirror, reflecting long-haired, unshaven cowhands plopped down along the wax mahogany bar. O'Malley, a little man in a white shirt and a red-striped vest, his hair thinning, banged the piano keys near the unoccupied stage's faded red curtain. In the cracked mirror, he eyed his long-barreled, pearl-handled Colt, tucked in his new leather holster. He stroked his mustache. His blue shirt, pinned with a dented tin marshal's badge, was buttoned to the blue bandana that hung loosely around his neck. From the top of his wide-brimmed hat, to the dust-sprinkled leather of his boots, he appeared taller than his six-foot-two-inch frame. His chiseled face was angular at the nose and chin. He had buried brown eyes and sandy hair. He was Jake McBride, the Marshal of Brinson, Nevada. Chapter 3. Brinson, Nevada. June 17, 1882, 12 p.m. Buy me a drink, Marshal? asked Suzette, adjusting the red fringe around her ample breasts. She was missing a tooth in back, but her dark eyes brought in the men. Not now. Maybe you're still chasing Pam. The pudgy bartender, his mustache waxed and curled at the corners, and his greasy hair parted in the center, wiped down the glossy bar with a clean linen rag. Hey, Jake, what do you have? What do you got, Orville? Orville removed an oblong green bottle with a bright yellow label from the back shelf. I just got in this case of stuff from San Francisco. Smooth bourbon. What do you say? Fill it. How was your trip back east, Jake? You catch that rustler? Nope. He placed both hands on the wood bar and panned the liquor bottles. A wild goose chase, brother. I ain't so sure there was rustlers out at the Comstock Ranch. Orville nodded opened the bottle, and filled the shot glass. And what's this about somebody fiddling with them telegraph-wise? Andy Bisbane says they're still down. But that ain't the big news. Orville plunked the stubby glass and then the bottle on the shiny bar. Jake lifted the glass and poured the bourbon down his throat. It was smooth, just like Orville said. Real smooth. Well, asked Orville, crossing his arms. Good stuff, brother, good stuff. 
He leveled himself out another shot as Orville leaned forward and whispered across the bar. Well, you picked a fine time to be out of town, Jake. There was a wreck and silver stolen north of Saroyo Canyon yesterday. Tracks were dynamited. Yeah, I was told. I reckon to look into it. An oversized mammoth of a man with scissor-sniped hair and a horse mouth opened his blue eyes wide as he set an empty glass on the bar. In his fringed leather coat, he stood a full six inches taller than Jake. I was rounding the bend up near Restriction Mountain, looking for food. What did you see, Sawtooth? asked Jake. Not what I see, Marshal. What I heard. Ground, ground, she was a-shaking. He opened his eyes wide and pointed into the air. You tell me it wasn't them sons of bitches blowing up the 924 on the way to Carson City. You been out there, Sawtooth? asked Jake. Nothing left out there. Nothing, Jake. Nothing. Orville poured in more bourbon, and Sawtooth took giant steps across the bar. He sat at the corner table with Annette Bailey, the most petite dancer in the saloon. I think she's taken her life in her hands, being with Sawtooth. Jake held his shot glass halfway. Then he set the drink on the bar and pointed at Orville. Railroad ain't saying much about the wreck. Andy's last wire said there's a railroad man coming in. Silver was headed to U.S. Mint in Carson City. I intend to go out to the wreck presently. It happened in my town. It's my responsibility. Silver's real important now, Jake. The government's buying it up. It's mandated now, Orville. I read in one of them Virginia City papers that Congress just made it a law four years ago. The U.S. Treasury is required to buy silver. President vetoed it, but the goddamn Congress overrode it. Sawtooth says you know the president. Jake swigged more bourbon and gazed over at Sawtooth and Annette. Now, Hayes commanded the Ohio boys, about a thousand at the beginning. Hell, Hayes convinced us to wear all them damn government uniforms. Don't know nobody that knows the president. It ain't no big deal, Orville. He pointed at the bartender. Haven't seen him since they reviewed the armies in Washington when the war ended. Didn't know him back in Ohio. He was involved in politicking. He never did nothing for me. Congressman from Ohio was the one who wrote the letter that got me the deputy's job in Elko. Before that, I was punching cattle in Texas. Left just before the hoodoo wars. All hell broke loose back there. You want to talk about real rustlers? Talk about the hoodoo wars. Jake stared at his mustache image in the smoky mirror. Then he thought about the wreck. Damn heads will roll if the government finds out that silver's been stolen. Well, soaring bird and the Shoshone, they saw the wreck. Engines were looking for food. I know that, too. Orville leaned toward him again and lowered his voice. Everybody's headed out to Saroyal, just like Sawtooth says, but the area was deserted. I don't understand that. Somebody at the hotel told Jim Coltrane the railroad's offering a reward. Ain't heard nothing about no reward. Coltrane says the freight car was stuffed with silver bars. Stuffed, Jake, stuffed. That silver is the property of the U.S. government. Yep. I need to talk to the U.S. Army men or the passengers, maybe the engineer, said Jake. I don't know nothing about the passengers. I ain't seen none of them in here. I tell you, they're all gone. Gone where? asked Jake. Don't know. I don't like it, Orville. I'm heading out there. A lanky woman, brown hair tucked under a black hat, strutted like a well-formed Mustang through the swinging cafe doors. Like a man, she wore a short-barrel colt in her side holster. 
Jake eyed her tight, dark breeches and new chaps, but stopped at her smooth face and luminescent eyes. She sauntered over to the table like a tumbleweed blowing into town, turned a chair around, and faced Jean Hawkins from the Turner Ranch. Pam Grayson, what the hell is she doing back in town? I heard she was working on the Turner Ranch, the sheep among the wolves. Those Turner boys, she ain't no sheep. She can hold her own, brother. She can hold her own. Jake filled the glass but let it sit on the counter. Pam looked wilder in her dusty garb and wispy, wind-blown hair. She could reel in a man with a wink of an eye. She never bought fancy dresses or silk stockings from the city boutiques. She could punch cows just as well as the men. Jake was attracted to her seductive, earthy eyes, but she was selective in choosing her men. She sat with Hawkins and a bunch of rowdy ranch hands at the table across the room. They ordered up a drink for her. Two months ago, she had left for Texas, and rumors said she was with Kid Curry for a time. Jake was surprised to see her back. She's fine, real fine, said Orville. As an old 49er, Albie always says, she ain't no petticoated astonishment. No, she ain't. Speak of the devil. Jake turned as Albie crashed through the front doors. His deputy, worn green leather hat crunched into his thick mass of gray hair, raised his finger and slipped around the tables. His voice was high-pitched and annoying. Jump in Jerusalem, Marshal! Jump in Jerusalem! Well, what is it, Albie? Albie reeked of body odor and stale whiskey. He grunted and spit a mass of tobacco juice toward the brass spittoon. Marshal! Dan Dalton! Dan Dalton! Calm down, Albie. What the hell's under your skin? Albie's dark eyes opened wide as he spoke. He curled his top lip and exposed two missing teeth as he jumped up and down like a monkey. They want to string up Dan Dalton! Dan Dalton? Jake glanced at Orville and stepped off the bar stool. The Turner boys! They got him out at the Dunbar Ranch! Somebody shot Tom Dunbar! Shot him in the back! Shot in the back! Turners don't give a damn about the law, said Orville. This ain't another one of your wild stories, is it, Albie? I tell you, Tom Dunbar, they shot the bastard in the back. Is he alive? I just don't know. They shot him in the back, Jake. Shot him in the back. Jake plucked out a silver coin and flipped it onto the bar. It spun around like a top and Orville scooped it up. He tipped his hat to Orville and plowed behind Albie through the saloon, but made eye contact long enough with Pam Grayson to send a burst of energy through his gut. Albie parted the cafe doors. The sunlight stung his eyes as his boots hit the boardwalk. Menowa, his black coat sheeny in the daylight, remained hitched near his office across the street. His horse snorted twice when he saw Jake. He stepped across the prairie dirt, unhitched Menowa, and climbed into the smooth leather saddle. Dan Dalton, a quiet man, washed dishes at the coal train for years and didn't even carry a gun. Jake gave Menowa a spur kick and the horse galloped down the street through town. The Turners were powerful enough to lynch Dalton. He followed after Elby's crooked leg horse Willie in a swirl of dust. Why would the Turners do something stupid like hang Dan Dalton? Under the gray cliffs in the shadow of the distant Sierras, Menowa leaped over a small gulch and scrambled up the sandy sage-covered slope. Jake leaned forward in the saddle, gripping the reins as he chased Albie and Willie along the ridge to the Dunbar Ranch near Hammer Creek. He gazed south towards Arroyo Canyon, 
carved deep in red into the flatland. Clouds formed along the horizon above Sorroyo. The vague outlines of the jackknife train appeared like a broken line across the molted brown plains. The engine and two cars remained on the track. He slowed and removed his field glasses from the saddlebag. The engine marked 924 near the smokestack sat on the prairie like a lonely buffalo. He swung the glasses to the left. The twisted tracks outlined a substantial crater in the desert floor. A stock car was open near the jackknife section. Where were the passengers, the engineer and the crew, or even the U.S. Army? To the west, jagged foothills led toward the higher peaks, silhouetted against the open blue sky. After he investigated the Dalton thing, he'd head out to the wreck. Elton Dunbar built his log ranch after the war under Freeman's Ledge. Hammer Creek flowed quickly about 200 yards beyond a long line of lofty oaks in Manzanita. Everything went to his son when Elton died a few years back. Tom moved from Mississippi and maintained the house with his family. He raised a few head of cattle, minded his own business, and had no battles with the Turners. Now he was dead. Jake slowed Menowar along the Cascading Creek. A dozen people had gathered under the tree clump ahead. The burly Rody Turner moved wildly on his black steed in front of the boisterous crowd, trying to move them back. A thick hemp noose dangled in the midday sun from a bare branch extending toward the creek. Dan Dalton, his hands tied behind his back, stood next to the dark stallion. Jake pulled out his colt and fired into the air. Albie, never missing an opportunity to create commotion, fired both his revolvers upward. The crowd turned and Menowar galloped into the encampment. Fat Junior Turner quickly looped the noose over Dalton's neck. Jake fired his gun again and pulled back on the bridle. What the hell do you think you're doing, Junior? This man killed Tom Dunbar, said the unshaven Mike Turner, standing to the right. All his brothers looked the same, dark eyes and hair, beard stubbled faces, and pig snout nose like the old man. The heavier Junior walked up to Jake. Who shot him in the back? Mary Ellen Dunbar, her brown hair a tangled mess in the breeze, held her two children back in the crowd. He killed my husband! You ain't gonna let some murdering bastard go free, are you, Marshal? Asked Rody, the eldest and most arrogant of the three Turner boys. Well, I don't intend to. Good, that's what we wanted to hear. Rody turned toward the bug-eyed Junior. Loop that noose around the son of a bitch. Jake vaulted off Manowar and drew his gun squarely in front of Rody's beady eyes. Belay that, Junior. This man is going back to my jail. So, the marshal won't serve justice, said Rody, stepping back to Junior. What's the matter, marshal? Worried about what the judge might say when he comes to town? Jake, with his gun still drawn, trailed the smaller Rody across the dirt. This wouldn't be the first time he shot somebody threatening his manhood. You can talk plainer than that, brother. Rody stared at his gun hand and looked at Junior and Mike. Don't try nothing, cried Elby, his guns pointed at the other Turners. Jake sensed fear in Rody's little eyes. Rody looked back to Junior and waved his arm. Let him go. 
Now, why don't you and your brothers get back to your place and you tell Sam how you're out here this morning trying to string up a man without a fair trial? Well, Par is for it, said Junior. Shut up, Junior, yelled Mike. You haven't heard the last of this, McBride, said Rody. He and his brothers strode together back to their horses beyond the trees. Jake turned to Albie, and then they mounted up. Bring him in, Albie. Close call, Danny, close call, said Albie. The turn of horses produced a dust cloud along the creek. The brothers crossed at the ford and headed west under the high clouds. Albie pulled out his glistening bowie knife and sliced the rope around Dan Dalton's wrist. Mary Ellen, clutching her children, wept as Dalton, only in his early twenties, staggered forward and meekly stood in front of Jake. Jake did not see guilt in his blue eyes. What happened, Dan? Well, I rode in, Marshal. I came to borrow Tom's saw. Talked about it yesterday at the Aurora. I got witnesses. You rode in and what happened? I, I found him dead on the floor. I run out just when his wife and kids come up in their carriage. Jake stroked his chin and studied Dan's glassy eyes. You killed Dunbar, Dan? No. Okay. Jake checked the clearing back to the house. You'll have a chance to prove yourself when Judge McKenzie comes to town. Albie, bring him back and lock him up. We'll do, Jake. We'll do. Jake turned to the neighbors. You men, Griffin and Early, ride back to town with him. The Turner boys had disappeared over the yellow grazing land across the river. They rode out here to seek their own kind of justice, and Jake wanted to know if Sam Turner knew about it. As Elby and the others marched Dan Dalton away from the clearing, Jake meandered through the crowd to Mrs. Dunbar. Marshal, are you sure you did the right thing? asked Newton Corey, one of the old miners. Yeah, I did the right thing, Newton. Marshal Tuckerman, he would have... I don't care about Tuckerman. Dalton will be proved either guilty or innocent at his trial. He looked into Mrs. Dunbar's washed-out red eyes. You heard what I said, Mary Ellen. If Dalton killed your husband, he'll hang. Tom was a good man, Marshal. He made it all the way through the war, and now to be shot in the back at his own place. You make sure that Dalton hangs. She cried on the bushy-haired Grace Whitman's shoulder. The kids looked up at Jake with wide, tearful eyes. Growing up without a father was not fair. Jake spun back to the crowd. Did anybody see what happened out here? I'm the one who saw Dalton, said Newton, moving his mouth around his beard. Saw the whole damn thing. What are you telling me, Newton? You saw Dan Dalton shoot Tom Dunbar? Well, not a... Uh... He tightened his bushy white brows and scratched his head. I didn't think so. I think you and Albie softened your brains drinking in the mining camps a long time ago. Jake faced the crowd. You listen to me, all of you. I'm getting sick and tired of you people accusing Dan Dalton of things you think he did. You were about to string him up because Newton thought Dalton shot Dunbar. Man's innocent till proven guilty. But I saw him coming out of the house, cried Newton. He run from the house and left in a gallop. Well, so what? Jake put his hands on his hips. Back along the creek, a single brown horse pulled a surrey toward the grove. Now who the hell is this? 
Jake took a few steps forward. The aging Doc Talmadge and Jim Coltrane sat in front. They brought the carriage to an abrupt stop. The mustache Coltrane, in his San Francisco vested blue suit, his black boots still spit-polished clean, leaped out first. He rushed across the clearing ahead of Talmadge. Jake, I heard Tom Dunbar is dead. If you think Dan Dalton killed him, you're dead wrong. You heard correctly, Jim. He is dead. And Dalton was out here. The unkempt Doc Talmud stumbled around the horses. Afternoon, Doc. Passed Alby along the way, Jake. Dalton do it? Damned if I know, said Jake. He motioned for Jim and Talmud to follow him into the barn. Dunbar's tools hung neatly along the barn wall, and his horses ate hay inside the stalls. Jake rubbed the darker horse's snout. Good fella. Jim held his arm. I have one question for you, Jake. Well, what's that? Talmadge passed a silver whiskey flask among them. No thanks, Doc. Dan Dalton worked in my kitchen at the hotel. I don't ever recall that kid wearing a gun, Jake. I can't believe he would just come out here and shoot Tom in the back. Stranger things have happened, Jim, said Jake, wiping the whiskey from his mouth, and he handed the flask back to Doc. Come on, let's go in the house. Jake studied the dirt as they crossed the yard. He traipsed across the porch and stepped inside. Across the clean-swept floor, Tom Dunbar, a mass of curly hair spread on the floorboards, was face down under his stony fireplace. One precise round hole had pierced his dark vest. Talmadge checked the body while Jake walked through the house. What's this? Jake turned. Looks like a saw to me, Jim. Yeah, but what's it doing here on the floor? All the other tools are hanging in the barn. I don't know. Jake faced Talmadge. Any other wounds, Doc? Nope. One shot. From behind. Very precise. I'd say he never knew who killed him. I reckon he's been dead three or four hours. The whole thing bothered Jake. Whoever shot Dunbar in the back did not want to be seen and wanted him dead quick. Dan Dalton did not even own a gun, and why would he be so yellow as to shoot Dunbar in the back? Jake set down the saw on the table. Because the rest of the tools were still in the barn, maybe the saw had something to do with Dunbar's killing. When the wires are up, I'm sending a wire to the judge about this. Good move. Let the judge try, Dalton, but I say with Sam Turner's boys involved in this, I'd keep your ass out of this, said Doc. I want this thing handled the way it's supposed to be handled. The sunshine blinded his eyes for a second. Near the barn, Talmadge and Jim continued to discuss the shooting. He walked down the length of the porch. Several greasy scuffs covered the outer boards. He bent down and raised his finger through what smelled and looked like creosote. He ducked under the rail and stepped into the yard. Boot prints rounded from someone running began at the porch and formed a trail in the dirt toward the cattle pens beyond. Another set of prints almost paralleled the first trail along the horseshoe marks near the corral. Someone had dismounted from a horse headed onto the porch and then returned. He followed the horse trail along the fence toward the open range. The horse had come and gone from the east. Amidst the sand grain, strayed grass blades and pebbles, an alternating bright reflection shone in the dirt. He marched forward, reached down, and picked up a spent Remington shell. 
Then he gazed across the long stretch of range. Anyone riding in from the desolate eastern land would be riding some distance. He stuck the shell in his vest pocket and headed toward Dunbar's barn. You find something out there, Jake? He reached into his pocket and placed the shell between his fingers. This could be anyone. No, no, someone with creosote on his boots. A rider came in from the east, hitched his horse away from the house, next to the cattle, and then sneaked up the side porch. But his boots scraped them boards. You better check Dalton's boots. Andy says an overland railroad man, John Rheingold, should be arriving soon on the evening stage. He reserved a suite, said Coltrane. Jake stroked his chin. He said this man is named John Rheingold. Can't place him, but why would a railroad man be arriving on a stage and not on a train? Jim, I'm riding down to Sorroyo. Why don't you and Doc come with me? Coltrane looked over at Talmadge. You won't find nothing, Jake. What are you saying, Doc? asked Jake. Train's empty. Train's empty? This thing happened yesterday morning. You're telling me in 30 hours the silver and the passengers are gone? Guess the engineers got them passengers on wagons to Carson City. Well, he's not in town. As a matter of fact, I was preparing to get rooms ready. Then we find out the passengers are all gone. When the hell did the silver disappear? Don't know. Well, damn, where's the engineer? asked Jake. Jake looked toward the brown ridges folded against the wide blue sky, blocking the view to Sororo Canyon. You coming with me? Yeah, we'll go. In the shaded grove, the parson had arrived and comforted Mrs. Dunbar and their children. To the east, Jake could see the old mines burrowed into the distant rock knolls. Someone rode to the Dunbar ranch from that direction, and Jake reasoned it was not Dan Dalton. If he and Elby had not arrived when they did, Dan Dalton would be swinging from the tree branch back in the grove. Chapter 4 Brinson, Nevada June 17, 1882, 2.16 p.m. Jake brought Menowar across the packed dirt desert floor ahead of Coltrane, Surrey. The train's long green passenger cars had jackknife across the desert. Jake counted six cars. He brought the horse alongside the car nearest the tracks. A thick dust layer coated the Overland Railroad's gold letters above the windows. Doc Talmadge was right about the empty cars. He peered at the shiny leather seats and the oak wainscoted walls inside. Then he motioned Menowak toward the massive metal locomotive 924 and the two cars that remained on the tracks. He climbed out of the saddle and onto the stony railbed. The railroad gangs had laid this track only two years ago. Beyond the forward cars, the steel rails twisted into a deep crater, like he had seen in Virginia during the war. The tracks toward Carson City had rusted along the sides, but the polished steel shined in the sunlight. Grass sprouted through the rocks. He stepped over the wood cross ties and checked the telegraph wires looped on the poles under the high, thin clouds. He wondered who ordered all the passengers to Carson City. Jake guided Menowa down the gravel bed to the rear car. Where was the engineer and the conductor? He slowly removed his colt from the leather holster as the wind rustled the dust across the tracks. Coltrane slowed his surrey and stepped out with Doc Talmadge. Coltrane focused on Jake's gun. Trouble, Jake? I ain't sure. 
He looked toward the engine. Soaring Bird first saw this? Last night, Jake, said Coltrane. He told Albie. Well, that was his first mistake. Did anyone see the passengers or the silver? No, sir. Only that engineer and his helpers, answered Coltrane. Then where the hell are they? Jake figured somebody had got that engine and the cars farther up the track. Jake turned back. Orville told me someone got the tracks good. Dynamite, said Doc Talmadge, adjusting his glasses. Jake stared at the scallop crater. Damn right, Doc. Damn right. Somebody knew this here train was coming by with silver. Like we saw her after Cold Harbor. Sheridan tore up all the rebel tracks, said Coltrane. Wasn't 64 this time of year, said Jake. They followed Jake around the caboose. Deep crisscross wagon ruts cut the brown, gritty soil. Well, ya look at this, will ya? Them are wagon tracks, said Talmadge. I know what they are, Doc, said Jake. Wagons removing the passengers, asked Coltrane. Or the silver, said Jake. Was the army guarding the silver? Well, the army usually guards valuable cargo. How'd they get all them passengers out so fast, and where the hell is the silver? asked Jake. They walked up to the hollowed-out crater. Splendid lumber and rail covered the grit and brush. Maybe the silver isn't stolen, said Coltrane. Maybe the army men just removed it. Unlikely, Jim, said Jake. You know as well as me, boys, them bastards waited for this train. Someone with a dynamite box. When the train was close, they pushed the charge. They needed to know that train had silver. Maybe the railroad man knows more, said Coltrane. They trampled the debris toward a new assortment of wagon ruts. Well, that's another good one, said Jake. The wagon tracks had converged and chewed up the gravel beds. Wreck happened yesterday and the railroad has a man out here in less than a day. The Overland's office is in Omaha. Too many unknowns here, brother. He led them around the crater. Why is the rest of this train still on the track? Damn cars are a hundred feet up there. Must have split with the force of the explosion, said Coltrane. Doesn't make sense for the car and the engine to still be on the track. Hell, Jim, they were all connected. Well, that's true. Jake crawled up the perforated metal stairs and lifted himself up to the cab. Wood had spilled onto the metal floor just below the boiler. The metal around the boiler was still warm. What do you see, Jake? asked Talmadge from below. Ain't nothing in here, Jake stroked his whiskers as Coltrane pulled his way up the handrail. Something ain't right. When we get back to town, I want to wire the Overland, the Army, and the Pinkertons. Good luck with those wires down, said Coltrane. Funny the telegraph line went down just as the silver disappeared. Jake nodded. The Army must have taken the silver to the U.S. Mint. We got no witnesses saying it was stolen. Coltrane put his hand on Jake's shoulder. I submit that there are no witnesses at all, Jake. Jake pursed his hardened lips and panned the purple Sierras to the northeast. The rugged trails would hamper wagons full of silver. He had a hunch the wagon tracks would lead south toward Sororo Canyon. The canyon tapered into Death Valley through California to Arizona and New Mexico Territory. Well, we gotta follow them tracks wherever they lead. And soon, just in case it was stolen, wagon loads of silver require strong and fresh horses. We should be able to catch them. I say we leave tonight if we have to. We? You're coming with me. Jake, you and I go back a long way. We're both Ohio boys, but, but I'm no scout. 
You got the good life at the Coltrane is what you got. Coltrane grinned. We all have our responsibilities. Yeah, we do. You can take Albie with you, he said, smiling as he looked across the prairie. Jake grinned. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Hey, look, look, shouted Talmadge. Jake leaned in the open window. From the western foothills, a ghostly image of galloping horses crossed the range. He squinted in the sun. Soaring bird rode bareback on his white pinto, and three Shoshone on darker horses trailed behind. Jake climbed down the engine ladder and dug his boots in the gravel bed. The ground rumbled as the sleek horses and their Indian riders approached. Soaring Bird's lean muscles tightened as he rolled off his horse. His skin was sun-toned and his high bronze cheekbones housed intense but quiet black eyes. He walked slowly toward Jake. A single black and white feather emerged straight up from a swirl of dark hair. Tiny blue ribs clamped strands near his shoulders. Numerous red and bright green beads looped around his smooth neck. He wore an open tan vest and army-issued leather breeches. Jake gripped his smooth hand. Soaring bird, I thought you was up at Duck Valley. Agent Palmer received your letter on my behalf. Thank you. I have a pass. The Indian had a mellow but melodic tone to his voice. He learned English when he was a child. Jake had known Soaring Bird since his days as a deputy in Elko. He found the Indians smarter than most white men. There are many new who wandered, McBride. Some have become farmers with the white man's army. Others work on ranches now as laborers. And others are at Duck Valley or Ruby Valley. When Yapani arrives, we find ourselves returning to Pia Sokopia, the Earth Mother. Glad you're free for a while, anyways. Was a time you roamed about and nobody bothered you. Those days are behind us, McBride, far behind us. Thoughts about his friend rounded up on a reservation only made him angry. I just got back to town. Welcome back. Some welcome. We were out at the flat yesterday. We saw this train. You saw the wreck? asked Jake. No. The train had already left the tracks. We tried to ride closer, but the army kept us away. The army? Two army men. They told us to leave or we would be killed. Jake traced the mud-cake flats toward the Sierra foothills. Many soldiers? We were too far away. They said they were loading passengers into wagons for travel to Carson City. Rough terrain. What about the silver? asked Jim Coltrane as he approached. According to the lieutenant, they were robbed by Mexican bandidos led by Estrada. Mexicans, shouted Jake. Did you see Mexicans? asked Coltrane. No, Coltrane, we were too far away and they forced us to leave. We went back to town to look for McBride. Well, I went after rustlers. Jake shook his head and put his hands on his hips as he studied the train again. I'd give my month's stipend not to have been chasing rustlers. Jabbed his finger at the numerous wagon tracks in the soil. What do you make of this? Soaring bird squatted and ran his fingertips over the powdery ruts. Then he and the other Indians wandered away from the train. They faced the canyon rim a few miles to the south. Soaring bird pointed as he looked over his shoulders. Deep tracks lead toward the canyon. Perhaps a heavy load. Jake gazed toward the rim. Why the hell would Estrada take heavy wagons full of silver 
into Sororo Canyon. Most of Estrada's gang was killed last year. Shootout in Arizona after they raided Monterey last summer. They almost took 75000 Then the Arizona boys got them. Even shot their mules, brother. Unless they reorganized. Canyon Trail will allow wagon travel, said Soaring Bird. Jake questioned how Mexicans could overpower a train load of soldiers. Why not bring the passengers back to town? I agree. Why the canyon? asked Coltrane. You're talking about traveling along the rapids. You reach the split with the land levels, and what have you got? Dry, parched land down to the Panamints. Yeah, Death Valley to the southwest, and if you're lucky, you hit the trail to Arizona and New Mexico territory, said Jake, and then to Mexico. Toro is a good place to hide silver, added Talmadge. Maybe. Jake stared at the buckled train. Then he turned to Coltrane and Soaring Bird. I'm moving out tonight, tomorrow morning at the latest. We'll find out whether the army has the silver or if it was stolen. I'd like to wire Fort Churchill in San Francisco right now. I want you, Soaring Bird, to come with me to find that silver. I will go, said Soaring Bird, looking at the Shoshone, but my people will return to Duck Valley. Good, I need your help. If that silver was taken, it ain't going to be given up easy. Sure you don't want to go, Jim? No, I'll stay back in town. I'll wait for the railroad man. Probably a good move. I need you in town. Having Albie in charge don't exactly make me want to jump for joy. I'll see if I can locate Levi Hanson or his girlfriend, the school teacher. Maybe she can find him. I'll deputize Levi and have him check the telegraph lines. Maybe in the meantime, Soaring Bird and he will track them wagons. Way back when, when I lived and worked in California, I enjoyed trips to Death Valley and Nevada. The terrain was so antithetical to my native New England. The wide open spaces and big sky was a perfect backdrop for a novel about the Old West. In Nevada, while visiting a ghost town at a lost mine, we were fired upon as we crossed a wide plain on foot. I could hear the whiz of the bullets over my head. That may have contributed to constructing a plot involving shootouts and criminal behavior. Next week, Jake McBride, with the help of Soaring Bird the Shoshone, begins to search for the missing passengers and silver from the overturned 924 Overland train. Get him up, move out! But I'm Robert P. Fitton, crossing into Death Valley. I'll see you next time on Fitton on the Air. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.
chapter 7.
is listed as part of the Nexus series. Let's start this engine, or should I say, let's mount this pony. When you're dead, you're dead by Robert P. Fitton begins now.